0: Tonight, as we get started, I want to uh, come to the study of God's Word. I want to remind you of two things I didn't remind you of beforehand. And that is that immediately following the service tonight, we'll have our regular congregational meeting. Shouldn't be real long. I don't think there's a lot of things to deal with. You'll have a brief report from the uh, uh, building task force. And they will uh, bring a little bit of report, but not, not what you want to hear, I'm sure. Not as much as you want to hear. But they will bring a brief report tonight. And uh, secondly, then after the congregational meeting, we're having a watermelon cutting. So the watermelons are on ice. They should be in good shape by the time we're finished. So we'll have a time of fellowship after that. All right. Take your Bibles now and turn with me to the book of Galatians as we continue our study of this great epistle of Paul that he wrote to the church at Galatia, probably one of his earliest writings, uh, one of his earliest letters in which he is shocked that they who heard the gospel, believed in Christ, were now showing signs of returning to Judaism because of, because of the Judaizers who had come and said, you know, it's okay to believe in Christ, that's important, but you've got to go through the Jewish ritual to really be fully right with God. And they were buying into it. And Paul became somewhat righteously indignant toward them and said, listen, I don't care if I come back and preach to you something contrary to what I've already preached to you, don't believe it. If an angel from heaven appears and preaches something that's contrary to what I preached to you, don't believe it. That I brought you what was revealed to me from Jesus Christ, and he'll talk more about that in this passage tonight, that you might know what is the pure and the true and the right gospel of Jesus Christ. It's something you can stake your life on. It's something you can live by. It's something that will bring you eternal life, and it will change your life in the present. And it's important for you to to do that. Well, One of the things that was happening though with these Judaizers is not only were they trying to deceive the people, uh, as Paul talked about it, bewitching them or tricking them, but they were also attacking Paul. They were saying, who is this man? Well, he just heard from Peter or James or some of the other apostles what they were teaching. And he, he has nothing different. He has nothing new. And so they were attacking his credibility and attacking his own ministry. And so starting in verse 11 of chapter 1, Paul begins a defense of his ministry. And he talks about it in several lights. He, answers, really, he talks about the origins of the gospel that he presented or what he calls his gospel. We'll talk about why he calls it his in a minute but the origins of his gospel. Then he answers three questions. What was my life like before my conversion? What uh, what happened in my conversion? And then what has happened since my conversion that has brought me to this point of being an apostle of Jesus Christ and a messenger of the gospel? Uh, I I love the way Paul says it here, and he he states it this way in other letters, and we'll kind of make some references to a few of those. But he he zeroes in on God's work. He zeroes in on on the grace of God, the initiative of God, the work of God in salvation, not only in our lives, but also in his life also. So hear this passage, a rather lengthy passage tonight that we'll read, longer than we normally do, but verses 11 through 24, we'll finish out this first chapter tonight, Lord willing. Paul says, For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure, and even tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. But when God who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Then three years later, he was there for three years, Then three years later I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas, that is Peter, and stayed with him fifteen days. But But I did not see any other of the apostles except James, our Lord's brother. Now in what I am writing to you, I assure you before God that I am not lying. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ." But only they kept hearing, he who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they were glorifying God because of me. That is a tremendous passage of testimony and defense by the Apostle Paul for his gospel. Now, he starts out in verses 11 and 12 just talking about the origins of his gospel. And he makes it clear by saying, this, this gospel which I preached, which is preached by me, is not according to man nor received from man. He said, I didn't learn this from anybody. Peter didn't teach me. James didn't teach me. Uh, I didn't learn this in my rabbinical schools when I was becoming a Pharisee. I, I didn't learn this from any man. I learned this by revelation. Through, I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, that's an interesting phrase that he uses there. And granted, it can be interpreted several different ways, but I think what the Apostle Paul is saying is that during this three-year period in Arabia that we'll talk about in a minute, Jesus Christ instructed me. He was there studying. He was there praying. He was there seeking the face of God, trying to work out what in the world has happened in his life. I mean, let's face it. Paul had one of the most dramatic, immediate changes of anybody that's ever lived. I guess short of Lazarus that we talked about this morning by way of illustration. Lazarus' change was rather dramatic when he was laid in a tomb dead for four days and then he was called back to life by Jesus. But you understand the apostle Paul was dead in his trespasses and sins on the road to Damascus to destroy the church and all of a sudden that same voice that called out to Lazarus in the tomb called out to Paul on the road to Damascus and while Lazarus had that physical death going, Paul had the spiritual death going and immediately the same voice and the same command and the same authoritative Lord called him forth from his spiritual death and he became alive at that very moment. I mean, You've got to imagine that a man who had been so schooled in the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, a man who had been so schooled in it, some of the finest teachers, some of the finest schools of his day, it must have been rather perplexing to him to come to that point of realizing that everything I've stood for, everything I've defended, everything I've been zealous for has now been reversed. It's been totally changed. Everything I believed, I now disbelieve. Everything I disbelieved, I now believe. And He said, I want you to know I got this from Christ himself. He calls it my gospel in several places, but I want you to understand, it was his only in the sense that he proclaimed it. And you will talk about that proclamation a little further down. It's only his in the sense that he proclaimed it, not that he invented it. Paul is what I call the, the commensurate waiter. I mean, Paul is the perfect waiter. If you go to a, a restaurant tonight after church or go sometime this week, and you sit down at the table and you order a steak and a baked potato and some broccoli. Uh, you don't want the waiter getting back there and saying to the cook, you know, he wants steak, baked potato, and broccoli. But you know, he really needs a chicken breast, and he needs some, uh, he needs some green beans, and he needs some rice, you know. yeah. Just fix him that, and then him bring that to you. You would be absolutely incensed. That's not what I ordered. Well, Paul didn't say, well, I think I'll mix this up. I think I'll, deliver something else but rather he delivered exactly what he was ordered to deliver by the Lord Jesus Christ himself it's an amazing thing you know the apostle Paul in a lot of places but this passage included in telling us about the origins of what he is proclaiming and in telling us about what happened in his life in many ways teaches more by implication than you and I ever teach by explanation I mean, Paul just makes some, things, some statements here. He almost makes them in passing. It's almost like he says, you understand this. I don't have to deal on it. I don't have to dwell on it. You know this to be true. And he just goes right on by it. And yet, some of those things are some of the most deep truths of the gospel message that you'll ever find. So verse 11, 12, he just talks about the origins that it came through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Next, he talks a little bit about what happened in his life before his conversion. Verses 13 and 14, primarily. He says, you've heard of my former manner of life in Judaism. You know what was taking place. Paul is basically saying here, I want you to know, I was a bigot and I was a fanatic. Now understand, he was a fanatic only in the sense that he refused to see the truth. He couldn't see the truth and he based his whole life on a lie. Being zealous for the truth as he becomes later on is not a fanatical sort of thing. I know one of the greatest charges against Christians today that really believe the Word of God is, well, you're just a fanatic. You know, you're just just a fanatic for the gospel. No, you're not a fanatic if you're zealous for the truth. You're a fanatic if you're zealous for a lie. That's why the suicide or the homicide bombers are fanatics because they bought into a lie, and they're giving their very life for a lie, which is ridiculous. They're fanatical about it. Because they can't see the truth, or they won't see the truth. So Paul says, I was a fanatic, and I was a bigot. Why? I was, I was giving myself over. I didn't want to just persecute the church. I wanted to destroy the church. You know, you've got to appreciate one thing about Paul here. He was totally committed to what he was doing. No doubt about it. And a man that's totally committed to something like that is not easily changed. As a matter of fact, he was not predisposed to uh, or of a mental and an emotional uh, state of mind. He was in no mood to change his mind, to just willy-nilly say, well, you know, I think I'll try Jesus. You know, you've heard that in some shallow evangelistic approaches before. Well, just, you know, we've tried everything else, just try Jesus. Paul was not predisposed to, quote, try Jesus. He was dead set on what he said he believed, and he was giving himself completely to it. No, he he wasn't predisposed to change his mind. And quite honestly, he was not the type of person that a man could very easily change his mind either. But I love how he says it. In verse 15, he makes that one little statement. I'm getting a little ahead of myself here, but it's important to see it. But when God... Paul uses those two little words together. He put when in here, but usually it's just, but God. In Ephesians chapter 2, he said, You who are dead in your trespasses and sins, you are without hope. But God, being rich in mercy, has given you life, has saved you. Well, Paul is saying here, man couldn't reach me. I wasn't about to change my own mind. But let me tell you something. The grace of God and the power of God and the spirit of God and the person of Jesus Christ on that road to Damascus, Arrested me, literally. What I wouldn't do of my own volition, and what man could not do by convincing me, God did. Only God could reach him. And God did reach him there on that Damascus road. And that's what he's talking about. He said, I was persecuting the church. I was seeking to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism. Why? I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. I was a a Hebrew of the Hebrews, he says in Philippians uh, chapter 3. He said, you know, I was was a top dog in my class. None of my contemporaries even came close to being as extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions, for our ancestral traditions, as I was. I was committed to it. But then something happened. I I was committed to this thing. I was sold out to doing what I was doing. And on my way to Damascus, on my way to arrest Christians, on my way to see to destroy that little embryonic church, something happened. I didn't plan it. I didn't want it. I didn't expect it. But none of that mattered because it happened. And so in verses 15 through the first part of uh, verse 16, Paul talks about what happened at his conversion. It's interesting here that in verses 13 and 14, really 11, 12, 13, and 14, the Apostle Paul's discussion is on himself. I advanced in Judaism. I persecuted the church. I sought to destroy the church. You know, I, I have a gospel that I received through a revelation of Jesus Christ. There's an emphasis there on himself and what was taking place in his life. In, in verses 15 and 16, Paul changes the discussion completely from himself. To God. Makes a complete shift. He was talking about what I did or what I wanted or what I sought, and he starts talking about what God did. As I said in verse 15, but when God did this, it made all the difference in the world. Think about those two little words. I've got a sermon back there on tape that was preached, I think in 1942 or something like that, by one of my favorite preachers who's long been with the Lord since 1981. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and and the title of the sermon is, But God. And in that sermon, Lloyd-Jones spends about, he he preached hour and a half sermons regularly, and he spends about a half an hour in that sermon talking about, are there any more two glorious words in all of the Scripture? Are there any two words any more glorious than, But God? When I couldn't save myself, I was lost in my trespasses and sin. I was dead in my trespasses and sin. But God, who is rich in mercy and rich in grace, he did something in me that I could not do for myself. But God, that's the whole but God is the whole essence of grace, folks. It's the whole essence of the work of God in our life. I want you to notice here in fifteen and sixteen. The, the, how each st- At each stage, the initiative and the grace of God is emphasized by the Apostle Paul. Now, I, I warn you here, he's dealing with something here that most Baptists don't like to even think about, much less hear about. And that is, he's talking about his, God's work in his life that didn't just begin on the Damascus Road. When we think about Paul, we think about, oh, Paul, he was saved on the Damascus road. God, through Jesus Christ, at that moment said, you know, I think I'll do something in Paul's life. Boom, i save him and change the course of his life. Paul says this. He said, I want you to know that but, but when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles... I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. There are three things there about God's initiative and God's grace that are emphasized. One, God set me apart before I was born. That is God, in God's eyes, the Apostle Paul was an apostle even in his mother's womb. Before he ever studied Judaism, before he ever became a Pharisee, before he ever did anything, in God's eyes, the Apostle Paul was an apostle even when he was persecuting the church. You can almost see God standing up there in heaven and laughing about this. (laughs) Paul thinks he's got me by the neck. Paul thinks he's going to be able to beat me as he got a surprise coming very shortly. It's the same thing Jeremiah said. Jeremiah said, I was called as a prophet before I was ever born. God had already planned my ministry and set me apart for that ministry before I ever came out of my mother's womb Romans 8:28 or 29 we know 28 is very clear you know we know God causes all things to work together for good well he does because he's in charge But in verse 29 and 30, that that golden chain of salvation that the Puritans talked about, he said, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, he also called. And these he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. There's an interesting statement there that I want you to see that relates to you In much the same way this statement does the Apostle Paul. And it's that last statement, the statement glorified. Those whom he called, he justified. Well, we know that if we're in Christ, we've been justified. We know that if we've been saved, according to the Scripture, we are justified by faith in Christ, well, justified by grace through faith in Christ alone. We know that is a reality of Scripture. But Paul talks here about those who are a part of this whole chain, he is also glorified. That is, for every believer in God's sight, just as Paul was already an apostle, even while in his mother's womb in God's sight, we're already glorified in God's sight if we're a believer. That's the assurance we have in Christ, that God knows the beginning from the end. God, as the Scripture in uh, Isaiah we looked at this morning as an illustration talks about God not only knows the beginning from the end, he brings about the beginning and the end on both ends of the spectrum. So Paul says, God's initiative began even before I could recognize it when I was, even before I was born. Second thing about this initiative and God's grace is that his prenatal choice that he made led to his historical call. Now the call on the Apostle Paul's life was not effective or affected until when? You can answer it. Damascus Road. Yeah, the call was not affected until the Damascus Road. Paul had no idea. You know, we talked about the will of God this morning, Jesus teaching us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, "'Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven.'" One thing I didn't really deal with there that we need to recognize, and I should have dealt with it this morning, is that there are, there are two understandings of will beyond what I even talked about. There is the revealed will of God, and there is the secret will of God that we don't know about. Now, we spend most of our time worrying about the secret will of God, don't we? The revealed will of God is what He's revealed in His Word. If you want to know what God's will is for your life, get in the Word. You know what god's will is in your life study the word that's where you'll find it the revealed will of god and everything we need to live life is there but you see for paul for for however many years until he was encountered by christ on the damascus road paul was living with a secret will of god he knew nothing about but boy let me tell you something on that damascus road experience It went from being the secret will of God to being the revealed will of God very, very quickly. And God called him. Paul said, when I was in my mother's womb, I was already in God's eyes an apostle. He set me apart in my mother's womb. But it was on that road that there, it led to a historical call. Same thing happened in your life, folks, whether we recognize it as dramatically or not. There was a point where there was a historical call by God's Holy Spirit in your life and you responded in faith when that call came and you believed him. But but you think God was surprised the day you were saved? You think God was caught off guard the day you were saved? Wow, I never dreamed Bill Haynes was going to do that. No. It was a part of his secret will that we knew nothing about. That's why we don't worry about his secret will. We worry about his revealed will. His revealed will says that we are to be expanding the kingdom by spreading and sharing the gospel because we don't know who's involved in that secret will and we ought to take it to everybody. That's very, very important to understand. Paul says, he set me apart. He called me. And then he said, and I love this way he says it. He says, talking about his ministry, and it, he was pleased, God was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Wow. It's interesting that all of a sudden, the person of Jesus was revealed, the Apostle Paul, by God. By God's initiative, by God's work. He opened his eyes, he opened his heart, And he saw who Jesus really was. Do you realize that Paul had been persecuting the church? And by persecuting the church, who was he really persecuting? Jesus himself. I mean, on the road to Damascus, when the Lord spoke to him, he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He didn't say, why are you persecuting the church? Why are you trying to destroy the church? He said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And and what was Saul's response? Who are you? I don't know who you are. You see, Paul thought that Jesus, whom he had seen in ministry, he thought that Jesus was an imposter. He thought that Jesus was a fraud. He thought that Jesus was one who was taking the beautiful truths of Judaism that he loved so dearly and taking the law of Moses and distorting that. But the reality was he was persecuting Jesus because he thought he was an imposter. And now in a moment almost... God reveals to Paul who he is, who Jesus is. And he says, and he gave me the privilege. He gave me the, he revealed his son to me so that I might have the privilege to preach him among the Gentiles. Do you know that if you've been called by God, and I don't mean called into pastoral ministry. I don't mean called into missionary service in a professional way or a, a vocational way that we would talk about. If you have been called by God, which is synonymous with being saved or born again, if you've been called by God, that's the same purpose with which you have been called, that you might proclaim Him, that you might preach Him, not in a formal church setting perhaps, but that you might proclaim, preach, proclaim, that's the same idea, Him among those whom you have contact with. See, Paul is saying here what happened in his life. He's giving his testimony. But even in just doing that, he's showing us what God's purpose is, what God's plan is, what God's revealed will is in every believer's life. Because every believer is called to ministry. Every believer is called to the Word and to share that Word. Well, Paul says, this is how it was before I was... I met Christ, this is how I met Christ, and this is how I saw the work of God's grace in that call on the Damascus Road. And then he said, well, what happened after his conversion? Well, he, he goes into quite a bit of detail on that in verses uh, 17 through, or 16b, really, through 24. It says in the last part of verse 16, did said, I didn't, I didn't immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia. And returned once more to Damascus. Uh, then he's going to talk about a little bit later. he went up to Jerusalem briefly for 15 days, and then he's going to say then he went off to Syria and Sicilia in, in order to just prepare himself. Now, something interesting about this is, it's almost like Paul is giving alibis, as though he were called into a court of law, and the Judaizers were the judge and the jury. And they were saying, why, you just parrot what you've heard. You're just living on tradition of this early church. You're just, you're just trying to tell us what Peter and James and the other apostles had to say. You don't have any real authority in yourself. Paul says, no, that's just not true. He said, I want to give you three alibis that prove what I'm telling you is the truth. The first alibi is I went to Arabia. Verse 17, this corresponds with Acts chapter 9. If you want to turn back there with me briefly and keep your finger there because we're going to look at three different per- verses from there. And verse 20, remember the first year and a half we were here on Sunday nights, we worked through the book of Acts and studied through the book of Acts. And in Acts chapter 9, verse 20, the Apostle Paul says, or start with 19, the latter part of 19, he said, for, Now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus, And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all those hearing him continued to be amazed and saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name, the name of Jesus, and who had come out here here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priest? But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving... That this Jesus is the Christ. Do you hear what Paul, what Luke is recording there about the work of Paul there in Arabia in Damascus? He probably went to Arabia, Damascus for solitude and for quiet. There was quite a uh, uh, an uprising around this thing. You can imagine how it would have been. I mean, if tomorrow we got news that that uh, just to make pick the most ridiculous illustration, if we got news that Osama bin Laden had converted to Christ and was now proclaiming Christ all through the Middle East, you think that wouldn't cause a stir? Of course it would. Well, that's not a lot of, a lot different from what... They saw Paul as a terrorist. They saw Paul as one who wanted to destroy the church. And so the church was all stirred up. Did you hear? Have you heard? The one who wanted to destroy us, the one who wanted to bind us in chains and throw us in jail... He's now proclaiming Christ? Well, not only was there a great hubbub around it, but there was probably also a little bit of skepticism. So Paul most likely went to Arabia for just quiet and solitude, just to get away from the people, get away from the crowds. Although he did, according to Luke, preach some there and proclaim some there. He seems to have stayed there for about three years. And and most scholars believe, and I tend to believe, that... In this period, he meditated on the Old Testament scriptures. You know, he was a student of the Hebrew Bible. So he meditated on those scriptures, probably those that talked about the coming Messiah. And began to understand that the prophecies about the Messiah were indeed fulfilled in this one whom he had been persecuting. He probably also reflected on the facts of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. I mean, he had experienced the resurrection of Jesus on the Damascus Road. And he probably thought back to seeing that crucifixion and hearing about the stone that was rolled in front of the, in front of the tomb that, that Mark has a parenthetical note in one of the translations that says, a stone so large that 20 men couldn't move it. He probably thought about that Roman seal that was placed on that tomb and, and how the penalty was death if it was open for those who were guarding it, yet they were not killed because something happened and the stone rolled away, the seal was broken. And Jesus Christ came forth. Contrary to the tales that they had been paid to tell. That, well, you just go tell them the disciples came and stole the bodies. Paul knew that was not a reliable testimony. So he probably reflected on the Old Testament Scriptures. He reflected on the death and resurrection of Christ. And during this time, the gospel of the grace of God began to be revealed to him in its fullness. And he began to see it in ways that he had never ever seen it before. I like the way he puts it when he when he writes to the Roman Christians in that very first chapter. And he says in Romans chapter 1 verse 1 and 2 he said Paul a bond of Christ Jesus called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, who was born a descendant of David according to the flesh, who is declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, whom we have, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. To bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. You just can't help but think during that solitude and that quiet in, in Arabia, he began to understand the grace of God and the gospel of God through Jesus Christ much more fully. Uh, you know, it, so the first alibi, he went to Arabia. The second alibi he gives, he he later went to Jerusalem, but he only stayed there briefly in verses 18 and 20. He says three years later, after being in Arabia for three years, he went up to Jerusalem to to introduce himself to Cephas or to to Peter, and and he stayed with him for 15 days. I mean, he, he makes it a point that he went there. As a matter of fact, in Acts chapter 9 verse 26, Luke kind of refers to that. He says, he came to Jerusalem. When he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. And he was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of our Lord. You know, Luke says, listen, he came up, he stayed 15 days. It was not very well received at the beginning. But Barnabas, the encourager, said, you know, I've heard his story. I've heard what happened. He began to introduce himself, introduce him to the apostles, and they began to receive him. You've got to remember, he's already proclaiming Jesus Christ as the Messiah. and So he meets with Peter and he meets with James. Later on, he's going to talk about having to come back and meet with Peter again about 14 years after his conversion, so probably about 11 years after this event. And he, the Apostle Paul, confronts the Apostle Peter about some hypocrisy. We'll see that next week. And then his third alibi is he went off to Syria and Cilicia. He went off there in verses 20 through 24. And he, he says, you know, if you look at that area on the map, you find out it's, it's to the extreme north of Jerusalem. And it really corresponds with the 30th verse of chapter 9 of Acts. But when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. They, they took him and, and they led him away because some, were, some of the Jews were trying to put him to death. They said it's still too dangerous for him to be here. And so they sent him off, and he went back to, uh, to his home area, to Tarsus, which is down in the area of Syria, the extreme north part of the country. And there he continued to preach. He continued to proclaim the gospel and proclaim that Christ is the Messiah. And there he, he, he prepared himself for the greater ministry that God was about to give him. So he says, listen, there are my alibis. I didn't have time to learn it from Peter. I didn't have time to get a lot of tradition from the church. I trusted in the, in the scriptures that I had, what we would call the Old Testament, and I leaned upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, some people look at that and say, well, if Paul had revelation like that, why don't we have it again? Why don't, why don't people have it today? Why don't we still have an open canon? Why doesn't the, the letter, a bill to the Gracians, uh, why don't we put that in as a... Uh, as a part of the scripture. I mean, I write some pretty good letters in our uh, grace notes, I think. Don't you? You're supposed to say yes. Thank you. Somebody did. All right. Thank you. Uh, You know, it's a whole different ballgame. To be an apostle, to be one who received the revelation from God, you had to meet some very strict criteria. You had to have seen his ministry. You had to have observed the resurrection. You had to have been called personally by him. Now, Peter and James and John and all those were called physically, personally by Jesus. Come, lay down your nets and come with me and I'll make you fishers of men. Leave your homes, leave your father, your mother, leave your families and come and follow me. I mean, the call is very distinct, very clear. The Apostle Paul received that same kind of call on the road to Damascus. He met all the criteria of someone who is... Uh, uh, capable of receiving the revelation from Jesus Christ. You know, the point he makes here, I like like how John Stott in his uh, little commentary on Galatians sums up this whole passage, verses 13 through 24. He says it may be summarized like this. The fanaticism of his pre-conversion career the divine initiative in his conversion and his almost total isolation from the Jerusalem church leaders afterward together combined to demonstrate that his message was not from man but was from God. Said so Paul confirmed and guaranteed this by the solemn affirmation in verse 20 there when he said in sort of a parenthetical way, Now, I, now in what I'm writing to you, I assure you before God that I am not lying. Paul said, I want you to understand, I'm telling you the truth. Jesus Christ has given me a word for you. And and Paul became the greatest interpreter of Jesus. Now, in our day, some, I want to put a quote around the word scholar there, some scholars have sought to pit Paul against Jesus. You've heard that. You've heard people today say, well, there's even a whole group of people that call themselves today red-letter Christians. I'm a red-letter Christian. I only believe... What's in red letters in the Bible? Well, they need to get a Bible that's all red letters, then, just to be honest with you. Because that's a that's not Jesus writing those words. That's John and Matthew, Mark, and Luke writing those that we get red letters. They're quoting Jesus. But you know, that's them writing. Jesus didn't write a book. He spoke, he preached, he did miracles, he taught. But you know if you say, well, I'm just going to look at the red letters, that's all. It tr- I had somebody in Somerset, Kentucky tell me that a few years back. I just believe the red letters. And all that other is confusing. Well, the Apostle Paul is the greatest interpreter of the message of Jesus. Some want to say he took it and he corrupted the simple message of Jesus. Some want to say Jesus just said, you know, love one another and just have peace with everybody. Well, There's some truth that he taught we ought to love one another and that that we ought to pursue peace as much as is possible. But Jesus also went in and didn't show a lot of peacefulness when he ran the money changers out of the temple. Jesus was not just about love and peace. He was also about truth. The apostle Paul became the great interpreter. So here's our dilemma. Our dilemma is this. Are we to accept Paul's account of the origin of his message supported by solid historical evidence? that he gives, and you find in other parts of Scripture? Or do we follow theories that seek to destroy Paul's teaching, that seek to say, oh, he's a male chauvinist, and he's prejudiced, and he's all these things? Which do we choose? Well, the truth of the matter is, if Paul is right, and I think he is, if Paul is right, then asserting that his gospel is indeed the gospel of God and not of man, is a necessity. Because to reject Paul, to reject Paul's teachings, is to reject God. Because that's where that message came from. That's where that gospel came from. It's utterly important to remember, folks. You know, uh, Jimmy Carter, I don't often quote Jimmy Carter, do I? Uh, Jimmy Carter just this past week, announced again, it's the third time he's announced it over the last five years, that he is leaving the Southern Baptist Convention because the Southern Baptist Convention is oppressive to women uh, because they believe that the Apostle Paul was telling the truth. And he says, wives, well, submit to your husbands. You know, and and uh, so he said, I'll have nothing to do with that, and he's made this great declaration. Well, I was pleased to see Chuck Colson and Cal, uh, Cal Thomas and Al Moeller and others write, uh, response to that and i loved what chuck colson said in his he just simply said you know folks we cannot we cannot believe we cannot accept that modern cultural changes can change what god's word says we have to come to the authority of the word or we have no authority if, if god's word's not true in every area then it's may not be true anywhere we don't, have the, we don't have the right, we don't have the, the luxury of saying, well, I'll take this and I'll not take this. I'll I'll get, take a little bit of this, but I'm going to reject this. Can't do that. So, as you can't look at it and say, well, you know, some of these things Paul said tonight in this passage are really tough things. I mean, I, I really don't want to think in those terms. I don't want to think that deeply, that in- Set Paul apart from his mother's womb. I'd rather just think somewhere down the road it kind of got changed, you know, and he did it. Those are, those are deep truths. You don't throw them out, you study them. That's why I like to preach expositorily because when you move through books of the Bible, you have to deal with those things. I know a lot of preachers that just preach topical here and there and whatever they feel they want to talk about today, and they never hit the hard issues. They hit the issues they like. This forces you to deal with issues that maybe get a little uncomfortable sometimes, and they should. Because this is God's Word to us, saying, This is God's revealed preceptive will. This is how God wants you to live. This is what God wants you to understand about truth and about Him and about life and about His work. And basically, He wants you to understand that He's God and you're not. So when you come to prayer, you remember who he is and you remember who you are. Let's pray. Father, we come this night rejoicing in your grace and in your goodness. Rejoicing, O Lord, in your truth. Father, Paul's going to teach us a lot in this book about your power and your gospel. He's going to teach us a lot about freedom in Christ because these Galatians who had been set free by the gospel of Christ were now returning to bondage of legalism. Father, we can be so guilty of that. We can be so guilty of just legalistic attitudes that have nothing to do with your word, but have to do with our culture and our likes and dislikes. Father, help us evaluate everything in light of your word. Keep us free, O Lord, from the bondage of legalism. Keep us free, O Lord, from the bondage of licentiousness that goes just the opposite. It says, oh, there is no revealed will of God and we'll do what we want to do. Contrary to the Word. Father, keep us in the freedom that is in Christ to walk with Him. To know His fellowship. Father, I thank you for this passage tonight and just the reminder of what a great God you are. What a great and powerful God you are and what powerful words those words but God really are because it's the but God that saved us. It's the but God that gives us strength to go on every day It's the but God that uses us to share the gospel even when we don't feel like it because you've called us. Thank you, Father. Lord, use us this week for your glory and for the cause of the gospel. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.